If you need a Bible, if you don't have one with you today, please raise your hand and, and one of the ushers will bring one to you. We always want to encourage everyone to take uh, the advantage of the privilege it is to read along through the text of scriptures with us as that's what we study here each and every Sunday. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 4 verse 1. near the back of the Bible, back of the New Testament. Fairly small book, small letter, written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 3, and then we'll pray over it. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Let's pray over this text before we get into it. Father in heaven, in a world where there's so much information that we try to pass as wisdom, we pray that you give us the appropriate filters through Scripture so that we may know what is earthly, natural, and demonic, and what is truly from above, pure, peaceable, and gentle, godly, full of mercy and good fruits. We pray now over this text that is all about wanting, wanting something that's ultimately good, but people going about it in all the wrong ways. So please help us to see, see Christ in this passage and to give us a better understanding of what it means to live life as those who uh, profess the name of Jesus in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We, we live in a world that actually supports jealousy and selfishness. We live in a culture and a world that actually supports this kind of attitude so as long as it motivates the person to achieve their happiness. You can see all kinds of examples of this. You, you get a professional athlete who might have come from, uh, from uh, the depths of society, right? Every, all the odds were against this athlete. And then growing up now, they're sitting large on a big pile of money and cars and a house and the fame. And they're being on TV every day. And they're being paid a lot of money for throwing a ball or shooting a ball or hitting a ball and, and, and all that kind of stuff. We could see that the world actually supports jealousy and selfishness. So as long as it motivates us to achieve happiness. Because what happens with these, these athletes come into our schools and become motivational speakers for our kids and our students in these schools, they will say things like, you like what all I, everything I have? You can do it too. You can make your way to success. If you just try really hard, if you apply yourself, you can have everything that I have in my life. And this is the message that we tend to send or not we, but our culture sends to our young people and adults when it comes to motivating them to, to be better than they've ever been before or to achieve more than they've ever achieved. is using that jealousy of others and that, that, uh, that selfishness, that selfish desire of getting what you want out of life. Well, you can get all those things if you just put your mind to it. So the, our world, America, our culture, probably wouldn't admit it or put it in these terms, but they actually support jealousy and selfishness. That's what our whole society is based on. 
getting what you want, having it your way. And it's the same message that's being taught to our young people in the schools. Anytime they have one of these motivational speakers come in who is a successful business person, successful athlete, or someone who's just successful in a, a certain area of interest, whether it's a, a football player talking to a football team or a pro basketball player talking to the basketball team in a high school, it's all about, hey, you can become like me if you just try really hard. Our world would justify it by saying, well, we're just helping people, people to become better people. We're just helping these children to better themselves and become all they can be. That's all we're doing. But it's really, it's just taking advantage and it's utilizing this in, innate selfishness and jealousy that's within us as sinners, as sinful man, to always want more. And so as Christians, we're up against this kind of mentality that the world supports jealousy and selfishness. So as long as it helps you get what you want out of life. And we are to be the exact opposite of this. And this is where James takes us in this letter. If you might remember where, we last, where I last preached on in James is about who is wise and understanding among you is those who show by their good behavior and their deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. And so this whole section of James is all about how to discern who the godly are. Who is it who's truly wise? Because don't be deceived by those who just get up and speak and give motivational speeches. Because that, that was taken care of at chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers. Because the, the natural thing to do, if someone had some wisdom to share, or they were successful at something, or they were well-respected members among the community in the church, that was enough for them to just get up and be considered a teacher. And so in as Christians in the church, we cannot just succumb to every piece of wisdom that comes by our way. That let not many of us become teachers because, frankly, there's going to be a lot of people who aspire to that position simply because of how much respect they gain out of it. So as we dive in to James chapter 4, verse 1, we have to keep this in mind that some would argue, some scholars argue that this passage now is shifting, is a, is fo- shifting its focus to the unbelievers in the church. That there are those who are among the church, but not actually of the church. That there are people masquerading as Christians. But if you were to actually uh, uh, analyze their lives and just see the fruit of their lives, you would see that they're actually not Christians. So some scholars argue that James is now focusing on the unbelievers in the community. Because James uses this language such as, do not be deceived, or these people are deceiving themselves. And, and earlier in this uh, passage it says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So there is a reality of people being amongst the church, but not being of the church. And so now James is writing, uh, is very possibly writing to those people. And even if he isn't, say it's a Say he's still writing to the believers of the church. This still very much applies to us. Because we still sin. We still struggle with temptation. We still struggle with selfishness. We still struggle with being jealous of one another. So no matter, regardless of the audience who, who it might be, it applies to us in the church either way, just as strongly. Let's go to verse uh, 1. Verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, in other words, within you? 
These are internal struggles that come out and cause external conflicts amongst the relationships between human beings. The selfish and the jealous desires within each human being is really what how conflict originates. There are so many selfish things that we do in our life that ends up uh, um, causing friction with other humans that we come in contact with. And in this passage, I want to make it clear that this is these people are considering happiness to be synonymous with wisdom. These people consider happiness to be the same as wisdom. That as long as you're really happy, you must be wise because you achieved happiness. There's a lot of New Age and Eastern religions that focus on this aspect of wisdom. That if you somehow achieve ultimate happiness, you must be wiser than everyone else. Which is why we have all these successful people giving motivational speeches to, in, our, in our schools. Because they seem really happy. They seem like they made it. And so if they made it, then they should be able to share the three steps that got them there, right? They should be able to write a book on it and sell it. So as we go through this passage, I want us to to do something mentally in our minds as we read through this. I want us to input the word true happiness in parentheses in your mind. So as we read this passage, for example, say uh, at verse 2, you lust for true happiness and do not have it, so you commit murder. You are envious of those who have true happiness and cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have true happiness because you do not ask for it. You ask for true happiness and do not receive it because you spend it on your own pleasures. I want us to just put those in parentheses in our minds as we read through this text, this idea of what this passage is really about, is achieving happiness. Of all the things that they're asking for, all the things that they, they desire, uh, this word pleasure in the first verse uh, is not the source of your own pleasures that wage war in your members. That word pleasure is the word for hedonism. And our culture today defines hedonism as this. It's when happiness and pleasure is of the highest good. When pleasure and happiness is the highest good. That is a belief that people have in America. That pleasure and happiness is the highest good. You cannot attain more than hedonism, than, than doing everything and accomplish everything in your will that makes you feel good and makes you happy. In our culture, that is the highest good. And so in this passage, he says, what is the source of these, of these hedonisms that wage war in your members? It's talking about achieving that which is pleasurable and that which makes people happy. That's why we're going to be inserting this term, true happiness, within this text. Because that's ultimately what people are after. When you make a list of all the things that people want in life, what is it that they're ultimately trying to achieve? It's happiness. They want a certain kind of house. They want a certain number of children. They want a certain kind of spouse. They want a certain amount of money in the bank. They want a certain kind of life to live. All those things are ultimately driving towards what they would see as, this would make me happy. So in this passage, is, is, don't, uh, is not the source of your pleasure to wage war within your members. This is the source of these external quarrels and conflicts. There's a lot of selfish desires that we do, and they're, and they're, and they're very evident in the things we do in our lives. One of the first examples I think of is driving. When we drive, we get in this car, this box that that uh, isolates us from the rest of the world. And it's almost like the whole world is shut off to us. 
when it comes to music or listening to music in your car or not, all of a sudden, the cars around us are no longer people, right? They're just machines in our way, hindering us from getting to where we need to be. That's why it's so easy to yell at people. That's why it's so easy to honk at people. That's why it's so easy to just uh, dehumanize people in their cars and how they drive because we always think that where we're going is more important than where they're going. Driving is one of the most selfish things we do as human beings. Other areas like marriage, if people have a, a bad understanding, an unbiblical understanding of marriage before they get married, you're going to see that the, both the new husband and new wife have internal struggles, things that they think they, they should, uh, things in marriage that they think would make them happy, and it conflicts with their new spouse. It's these internal struggles that cause these external conflicts. We see it in its most primal sense when we look at children play with no adult supervision. It is their internal struggles, their internal desires to say, this is mine, back off. And then you have pushing, shoving, scratching, biting. And that's just my house. (laughs) But we see it in its most primal sense when we see children trying to play with one another, trying to get along. It's this internal uh, desire. The source is not the source, their own pleasures that wage war within them that cause external conflicts. It's the same with us as adults. We can move on to verse 2 now. It says, You lust for true happiness and do not have, and so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Selfish desires can cause us to do despicable things to one another. Even to the point where we actually do commit murder, the physical act of murder. And this letter of James is not just referring to the physical act of murder. It's more to the idea that it's a heart of murder. That when Jesus teaches on murder in Matthew 5, he puts it this way, that that when you, I'm just going to summarize it for you, but in Matthew 5, verse 21 to 26, you can see Jesus teaching on murder. And to sum it up, it's essentially saying, when you have a murderous heart, you are devaluing others as if they are made less in the image of God than you are. And so even accusing or name-calling someone, uh, calling them something that is less than who they are, you're devaluing them as someone who is made in the image of God. So earlier in James, uh, he says plainly, he says, With our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Brothers, these things ought not to be this way. So it is very possible to be considered a murderer in God's eyes without having to commit the act of murder. When you have murderous intentions for someone in the sense that what you want is greater than the value of who they are as a human being, where you will dehumanize them or consider them less valuable than you are, that is a murderous intention. People don't think about the terms when we say things like, go to hell or, or to hell with you. That, is, that should be not even our vocabulary as Christians because right then and there you're saying you don't care about their eternal destination. So these are major statements that sometimes even Christians make towards other human beings. It's when you disregard the fact that they have been made in the image of God 
And for all you know, tomorrow they could become your brother or your sister in Christ. And what are you going to do with those feelings of hatred when they are now your brother or sister in Christ? And First John has some strong statements for those who call themselves Christians yet do not love their brother or sister. Essentially it means that you're not a true believer if you have a murderous hatred towards a brother or sister in Christ. Scary words. So verse 2, it touches on the sixth commandment and it gets to the heart of murder. That the, these, these, pl- these pleasures that wage war within us are sometimes so strong, you'll do whatever it takes to get it. And we even see this once again in our worldly wisdom. They'll say, don't let anything get in your way. Don't let anyone get in your way. If people tell you you can't do it, just ignore them. They're just trying to stop you from having happiness. We are told this over and over again in our culture. Don't let anything or anyone get in the way of your happiness. The next statement says, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This touches on the tenth commandment of do not covet. What does it mean to covet? It means to passionately desire that which does not belong to you. To passionately desire something that belongs to someone else, to your neighbor, to your friends. To passionately desire something that does not belong to you. That's what it means to covet. Why is this a sin? Why is this a problem? Because essentially, if you're passionately desiring something that does not belong to you, you're you're essentially saying to God that what he gave you is not good enough. That you wish you had someone else's life. That the way God provided for you is not good enough because he provided a lot better for this person. Or maybe God, you feel like God blessed this family more than he blessed you and you would rather have their life. That's the sin of coveting. It makes it impossible to truly appreciate what God has done for you. Another practical way this affects us is that it keeps us from being genuinely joyful for others. It keeps us from being able to actually rejoice with others when God has blessed them or provided for them. If we are continually have, if we have covetous hearts and intentions that we want passionately something that doesn't belong to us, and God blesses a friend of ours with something that we want, how can we truly rejoice with them? I don't think anyone wants a friend like that. Where we always, I see a lot of complaints from people on social media about friends who can't be happy for them, right? Nobody wants a friend who can't be happy for them when God blesses them. But that's what happens when we covet what others have. When we are not content with how God has provided for us. When someone gets blessed, instead of rejoicing with them, we say, man, I wish that was my life. I wish God thought of me enough to give me that. And we are questioning God's sovereignty. We're questioning God's goodness. We're questioning his whole attributes when we doubt who he is, when we doubt his goodness. That is the sin of coveting. And what are these people after again? Remember, they were after happiness, these people. They are envious of this this kind of happiness that the true godly people have, which in a way should be kind of a good thing. If we're living our lives as Christians and we are going through trials and there's uh, unbelievers who are going through the same trials, the Christians should have a kind of joy about them, a kind of happiness, contentment about their lives, to where the unbeliever says, how do I get that? How do I get that kind of joy? There's people sick in your family. There's people sick in my family. But yet, you seem to be affected a lot less than I am. 
How do you get there? What kind of perspective do you have as a Christian that allows you to be so peaceful in this? So, see, these people keep seeking out happiness in all their selfish pleasures, and they're wondering why they're not getting this kind of happiness. It's because they're going about it all the wrong ways. They're not seeking out this godly wisdom that is described in, in chapter 3, 13 to 18. They keep seeking out their own selfish pleasures that are waging war within them. See, ultimately, they're desiring something good. They're desiring happiness, which is not a bad thing. But they're going about it in all the wrong ways. And they're wondering why they're even praying about it. They're even asking God for it. And they're still not receiving it. And, and they're wondering why. You're envious and cannot obtain this true happiness. And so you fight and quarrel. As they can, uh, it, In this whole letter of James, we know that there is division amongst the church. We know that. Because in chapter 2, James says pretty plainly that they are showing favoritism amongst one another. The rich and the poor in the church. And how they're being treated differently. And how those who show favoritism are just as guilty as breaking God's law as those who are murderers and adulterers. That just showing favoritism amongst one another makes them guilty and lawbreakers. And so we know there's division among the church, and we, and so it wouldn't be a surprise that these people are envious and coveting one another, and it's causing them to fight over one another as Christians. They're probably asking, hey, how come, how come God is giving you so much more than he's given me? I want that. It's still these selfish, internal desires that are causing conflict amongst them in their relationships with other people. Because they're wondering, how do I get this? And the only way they know how is by arguing about it by fighting with one another. In verse 3 now, we move on. Last verse for today is, you ask and you do not receive. Ask for what? True happiness. And you do not receive it because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend your happiness on your pleasures. They're asking for it and they don't receive it. it. So often I hear Christians uh, praying for stuff in their life, physical things, material things, or certain relationships in their life that they want. And, and they tend to add a little caveat to the end saying, God, if you just give me this, I promise I'll also use it for this, you know, for your glory. It, it, God, if you just give us this house, I promise that we'll dedicate a room for prayer. I promise that we'll have and host Bible studies at this house. But God, if you just give us this awesome house, that'd be great. And I promise I'll also use it for your glory. People tend to try to play this game with God. Like they ask for these physical, material things or even relationships in their life. And then there's this thing at the end they tack on is, oh, I promise I'll use it for you. At least part of it. Of all the passages in Scripture that talk about asking and praying for physical provisions, this is not one of them. This is not one of them. When we, when we think about this idea of we ask and don't receive for we'll spend it on our own pleasures, we don't, we don't, it's, not, it's not a challenge to try to ask for something cool and, and say, God, I promise I won't use it selfishly. Because we're already asking from a wrong place. This is, this is not one of those passages that we talk about that we should be using in praying for physical provisions. Because this whole context of this passage is about wisdom. How God's wisdom brings a, a unique form of happiness and joy that all these material things cannot give us. 
It's God's wisdom that brings us happiness, not material things. So even on the on first uh, first impression, it might look like uh, we should be praying for physical things and saying, God, I promise I won't use it selfishly. That's not what this is about. This is about the problem that people have when they think that happiness is going to come through physical things, physical blessings. But in reality, they should be asking for God's wisdom that will bring them the happiness that they are pursuing. That's what it's about. True happiness will never be found in possessions or relationships. Here's the logical progression that tends to be in most people's minds, uh, even amongst uh, Christians or non-Christians. They tend to think they have this general understanding that God wants me to be happy. These things make me happy. Therefore, God must want me to have these things. Because why would God not want me to be happy? I know that these things, that these relationships would make me so much happier than I am right now. So, of course, God would want me to have those things. That's the logical progression that we tend to go through in our minds, that God wants me to be happy. Okay, well, what makes me happy? Let me think about that. Let me make a list of all the things that make me happy. All right, God must want me to have these things in my life. And it's so deceived. God doesn't want us to be happy, actually. We're going to see that in through Scripture. He wants us to be holy. And our happiness is found in God's holiness. Our happiness is found in God's holiness. Happiness is not the ultimate desire of God for our lives because there are lots of things that make us happy that are not godly at all. Why do you think there's in the Ten Commandments there's so many do not do this, right? Do not do this. Even if it feels good, even if it makes you happy, do not murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't do these things, even if it makes you happy. Because that's not the ultimate goal as a Christian. The ultimate goal is that we find this unique form of true happiness in God's wisdom, in God's holiness. That's where true happiness is found. Leviticus 11.45, the whole book of Leviticus is about how to be holy as God's people. All right, so if you want uh, instructions for the Old Testament on what it meant for the nation of Israel to be holy and blameless before God, you read Leviticus and you read all the strict instructions and, and uh, all the strict guidelines for them to be holy, set apart from the other nations. And in, in chapter 11, he says this, Therefore be holy, for I am holy. That's why he gave us all these commands. He gave the nation of Israel all those commands in the Old Testament so that they knew how to be holy and they could live long in the land that God gave them, how to be truly happy. Because the other side is you die. <laughs> Disobedience was, a, was on your uh, a quick track, to fast track to death. And so God let them know, if you really want to be happy, you want to live long and you want to see your children, your grandchildren live long in the land that I'm giving you, you better obey my commands. Be holy. When Jesus taught on, on loving our enemies, he ended it by saying, therefore, as your heavenly, uh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, be holy, for our heavenly Father is holy. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we get this idea. It says, uh, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So our happiness is not the end goal for God. It is our holiness, our sanctification. 
and out of those things, out of pursuing those things, only then will that person experience true happiness. As a parent, isn't the isn't it what saddens us when our parents or when our kids disobey the fact that they are not trusting us that what we're trying to teach them is good and right, right? Isn't that the sad part when we see children, our own children, disobeying us? We are trying to teach them how to live. We're trying to teach them how to behave properly. We're trying to teach them uh, how to treat one another and treat themselves. And when we see them disobey, isn't the saddest part the fact that they're not trusting us? That what we're trying to teach them is good and right for them? That's what it's like when we disobey the word of God. When we're saying that we don't trust God's word in teaching us what is good and right. That's what we're essentially saying when we are disobeying the word of God. In uh, James 1.25, this idea that happiness is only found in, in God's holiness. is In James 1.25, it says, But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, proving to be not a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Why is this man blessed? Because this is a man who could look look at his life as it is today and know in his heart and be honest with himself and say, I am trying to look at the word of God, at his law, and I'm genuinely trying to obey and do what it says. And even when I mess up, it saddens me. Even when I mess up, it saddens me that to know that I sadden the spirit that lives in me. That's what it means for this man to be blessed. Why is he blessed? Because he knows that in the end, he is a child of God. That no matter how much he messes up, no matter, uh, no matter what, his, uh, what his struggles are, he is a man who has devoted his life to looking intently at the law of liberty, the perfect law, and trying to abide by it. He doesn't have to look at his testimony when he was 12 years old and he stood up and received Christ. He doesn't have to look back at VBS when he uh, prayed the prayer of salvation at five years old. He doesn't have to look at any of that. For the man to be blessed in that sense, all he has to do is look at his life as it is today and know that he is living for the Lord. Because those who truly live for the Lord, it never stops. It doesn't stop. Happiness is found in God's holiness. We see this again in Isaiah chapter 6. This uh, is a very famous passage, a very popular passage and well-known of when Isaiah has this moment where he's before the throne of God and the angel singing to him. And his first reaction is, woe is me, because he has an understanding that he is a sinful man. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, he's fearing for his life because he knows he shouldn't be anywhere near God's throne. And what happens is that the angels come down, grab this burning coal, and the angel touches his lips with it that Isaiah just proclaimed that were unclean. And the angel says, your sin and your iniquity has been removed from you. In other words, that angel and Isaiah would would have known exactly what this meant. It meant that he doesn't have to fear about dying in God's presence. Because this iniquity, iniquity was removed from him. He was actually able to stand in that moment, witnessing what he witnessed without fearing death. That's true happiness right there. That's true happiness found in God's holiness. To understand that you are truly happy when you know you can stand in the presence of God. 
and be in his eternal glory and not fear of not fear that you're going to fall dead because you're not worthy of it. And it's just it's interesting what happens after that because after he's he has his iniquity removed from him, then God says you know, God has this mission and God says whom shall I send? Then what does Isaiah say? What does he say? Send me. Because he knew that the, that the angel made it possible for him to stand there. He then felt worthy enough and confident enough to say, send me. He wouldn't have thought about even saying those words if, if it weren't for the angel coming down and removing the iniquity from his lips. That's where true happiness is found in God's holiness. Knowing that you can stand in the presence of God and not fear death. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we see this. Uh, if you ever read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, um, this is where it comes to play. If you have not read the Beatitudes, and then read them in Matthew 5. But it's all, it, it starts off, there's, it, there's eight or nine of these, and it starts off, blessed are those, and there's a fill in the blank where, where it's something different nine times in a row. And you could translate the blessed are those to happy are those. And the deeper, the, the deep implications of the beatitude is the fact that it's how you achieve true happiness. Happy are those who are uh, poor in spirit. Why? Because those who are poor in spirit, those who admit their need for a savior, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Theirs, they will be standing in God's holiness, where they will be truly happy. Happy are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. What does that mean? It means that happy are those who mourn over their sin. For they will receive the comfort by God. They will receive eternal comfort in heaven, in his glory. It goes on, like, happy are those who are meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Happy are those who are merciful, for they'll be the ones to receive God's mercy. What does receiving God's mercy have to do with it? Well, if you receive God's mercy, that means that you will enjoy eternal happiness in God's glory. Because God has had mercy on you. And so read the Beatitudes in the light of where true happiness lies is in the eternal glory of our perfect Heavenly Father. It's not on earthly things. It's not in relationships on earth. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people, and there have been a lot of people, who have gone on to live the exact life that they had ever dreamed of. There will be plenty more people who will go on to live the exact kind of life that they had ever hoped for. They were able to make all the decisions they wanted to make. They got exactly what they wanted out of life. And they were happy. And it will cost them an eternity of pain and suffering. Because they did exactly what they wanted to do. They found happiness in their own selfish pleasures as opposed to happiness in God's holiness. Just because someone's really happy with their life, it doesn't mean they're doing well. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of people who live their life completely happy, completely content, with many people who looked up to their lives as, I want that kind of life, and they were indeed spiritually lost. And we can't forget the ramifications for sin. That when we proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sin, we can't take it lightly. Jesus puts it in the words of, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of times when people think about hell and they make light of it, or maybe they're a little cynical about it, uh, 
usually non-Christians will say stuff like, oh, well, I, I think I'll actually enjoy hell because uh, I like living the life I'm living right now. And they think hell is going to be like just for them. Or people minimize the fact of how, how excruciating it is to be in hell, and they'll say things like, oh, well, I like pain, or pain doesn't bother me. I lived a whole life full of pain. You know, that's not going to bother me. And my response to that is, I've yet to encounter someone who genuinely enjoys being angry all the time. I've never met someone who, who genuinely enjoys being sad or depressed. I've never met someone who genuinely enjoys feeling suicidal. I've never met someone who genuinely enjoys uh, uh, experiencing excruciating pain or agony that they cannot escape from. That's, how, that's my response to when people say that kind of stuff. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is representative of how much anger those people are going to have towards God because of what they're going through, because of the punishment of God's wrath coming down upon them. They're not going to repent. There is no repentance in hell. It's just eternal gnashing of teeth, eternal anger at God. And there's extreme sadness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are plenty of people who are going to live their life exactly the way they want. And they will be completely happy with that life until they die. And that's when they find out that's not where true happiness is found. A couple examples from Scripture. Luke 16, Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, these are two real people that lived, and he's telling the story about their lives. And, and the rich man was someone who mistreated everyone, and he was rich. And there's Lazarus who, who sat at the gates many times begging for things to be provided for. And it came a point where they actually died. And Jesus tells us that Lazarus is brought up to the place of comfort, uh, which is Abraham's bosom. And then we have the Hades, which is where the rich man went. And their understanding of Sheol, or afterlife, was very limited at that time, to where they had this understanding where there's a place of comfort and there's a place of torment. And they, they knew that there's no crossing in between. There's no way that you could jump over or bridge the gap in any way. But they had a very limited understanding of afterlife back in those days uh, because they didn't have the full revelation of the New Testament that we have now. And so Jesus goes on to tell the story that this man was suffering so bad this rich man who was in the place of torment was suffering so bad he was begging Lazarus, who was in the place of comfort, begging him for help. And the response that he got was, Lazarus could not do anything to help him. There's nothing he could do. The gap was too big. There's no way to bridge it. There's no way to even reach him. And so the next uh, plea by the rich man was, then at least uh, he begged that someone would uh, send uh, uh, someone to his family uh, to warn them about this place, this place of torment. And he got another discouraging, discouraging answer, essentially said, you know what, it's, if they didn't believe all the prophets, they're not going to believe even God himself. <laughs> they're not going to believe anyone else that shows up. The torment was so bad for this rich man that he was begging that someone would come to earth and go back to earth to his living uh, relatives and t- warn them about this place of torment. Once again, we see in the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, this is a rich guy. You can see the uh, commonalities of people being rich, by the way. This rich young ruler came and said, God, or Jesus, uh, what do I must do to inherit 
uh, treasures in heaven. To inherit eternal life. And Jesus went over the Ten Commandments, just like Pastor Andy's doing with us. He went over the Ten Commandments, said, you know these commands. And, and he essentially said, yeah, 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 I know all this stuff. Teach me, some, tell me something I don't know, Jesus. And then Jesus does. He says, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And that's when we were told that this man walks away sad. Because he thought that his happiness is found in earthly things instead of the word of God. Jesus gave him a very direct command. Hey, if you ask me how to get eternal life, I'm giving you a straight answer. And this man walked away sad because he had much wealth. So we have this problem of these people asking for true happiness in all the wrong ways. And so naturally the next question would be, well, okay, so what is the right way to pray? What's the right way to ask for God's wisdom without being selfish or jealous of one another? I think Jesus put it well when he taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins and we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is how we pray correctly. That's how we pray in an unselfish manner. That's how we pray in a way that doesn't involve our jealousy of one another. We just pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. There's more practical, uh, practical uses for this. And here's some common prayer requests that we tend to uh, pray as Christians. One of them is, Lord, fix my marriage. It's a good, it's a good prayer. It's a good intentions. But I would go further than that and say, well, if they should probably instead be praying to fix my marriage because it's very ambiguous when we say that, by the way. We were just saying, Lord, fix me. Or God, give me fill in the blank. Maybe instead or before praying those things, we should be first praying, God, give me contentment first. Or when we pray for physical healing for one another, this is a very uh, uh, close-to-home kind of subject. When we have family members and loved ones who are going through tough times and, and they're going through sicknesses and illnesses and, and injuries and all those other things, and all we, many times all we can think of is, God, please heal them. But I want to present something that I feel like we should be praying more that is even more important than their physical healing is their spiritual healing. If you have a Christian brother or sister who's going through a sickness and they're going through a trial in life, because that is a trial in life, pray for their faith. Pray that their faith is strengthened through this time, that they come out the end of this uh, sanctified and more purified and more holy in God's eyes, that they will become, uh, that their faith will persevere through these trials. Because we don't know if they're ultimately going to be healed or not. We don't know if it's going to end up being a chronic issue or not. We don't know if they're going to die from this or not. So even more importantly than their physical healing, because once again, we tend, to, we tend to equate happiness with living longer, we should be praying for also their spiritual health. If you know the person is not a Christian, and that if they were to die from that illness or that sickness, they would indeed pay the penalty of their sin and suffer God's wrath, then we should be praying for their salvation. Because them living 10 years longer and still rejecting the Lord will not do them any good. But if they were to die in two days and, and you pray for their salvation, and they came to faith in Christ before they passed, then that's way better for them because they are experiencing true happiness in God's holiness. 
Those are just a few different ways for us to start praying. Instead of just praying for the earthly and the physical things, we also have to have, to have the spiritual in mind. If your students or your children are struggling with grades or, or struggling with studying, instead of just praying that they magically get good grades, you know, on the day before a test that they didn't study for, maybe we should be praying weeks ahead of that time, or those students should be praying weeks ahead of time, saying, God, give me the desire to attain this knowledge, right? Instead, we tend to just pray for miracles, like, oh, man, I really hope I get an A on this. You, most of us know if we really deserve to get an A on something or not. So maybe in those cases, we pray, Lord, help me to remember the things I studied. Lord, help me to do my best on this test. Not just praying for magical things to happen, like, oh, I know I didn't study at all for this test, but I pray that I get an A. That's dishonoring to God and dishonoring to ourselves. This is what it means to find your happiness in God's holiness. When we keep the spiritual things in mind, True happiness is not found in possessions or relationships. It's only found in God's holiness. And so the next question comes to mind is, well, how do we experience this kind of happiness or holiness? One of the places you might turn to is Romans 10, 9 to 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In Titus 3, 3 to 7, it says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of the deeds in which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal happiness. It doesn't say that. It says eternal life. Colossians 1, 21-22 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his flesh, fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's where true happiness is found. When you stand before God and you have Jesus interceding for you and you know that you will be presented to God as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's true happiness. Because you will not fear death in that moment. You will only be looking forward to eternal glory with him. You will understand that you are not held guilty for the sin of this life because Jesus interceded for you. And that's where true happiness is found. So often in our prayers, in our prayer requests for others, a lot of times we're guilty of just praying for happiness. God, I pray that my kids will just grow up to be happy people. That's a really common prayer request I hear from Christian parents. I'll talk to Christian parents, and a lot of times they'll say, they'll see their child going through a rough time, and their parents' response will be, I just want them to be happy. And it takes everything in me to say in a polite way of, don't you want more than that for your child? Don't you want more than this temporary happiness that's going to be fleeting until the next trial in their life comes? 
Don't you want more than this, just happiness for your loved ones? We cannot sugarcoat the fact that it, for those who do not have their faith in Christ will pay the penalty of their sin. They could be happy. Our children could live happy lives and live the life, exactly the kind of life that they wanted to live. But their faith is not in Christ. That happiness will be utterly gone when they die. We have to desire more for our kids. We have to desire more for our loved ones. We have to desire more than just happiness on earth. Our desire needs to be happiness in God's holiness. And that's only received through Christ alone. So let's pray. Father, we, we ask you for your forgiveness of all the times that we've been distracted by worldly wisdom telling us to chase after our dreams and chase after this temporary kind of happiness that leads to nowhere. We ask for your forgiveness of all the times that we've been driven by selfish tendencies, our selfish desires, and, or jealousy and, and, and coveting what others have. We ask you for your forgiveness. We as a congregation, I, I, I speak on the behalf of our congregation saying that we repent of those things. We thank you for the fact that we can continue to mess up knowing that we are, all, we are redeemed in Christ. For the man who looks intently at the law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, proving to be an effectual doer and not a forgetful hearer, that man is blessed. And God, I pray that you continue to mold us into those kind of people. And when we have our doubts, when we have our uh, questions uh, of whether or not we are truly saved, that you would encourage us by allowing us to look back at our life today and know in our heart of, heart of hearts that we are looking intently at your law. It is our heart's desire to do what it says, even when we stumble. And it saddens us when we disobey because we know that your spirit is indeed saddened by that. I pray that you make us, continue to make us into this kind of people and that we would find true happiness in your holiness. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who does not have their faith in Christ. I pray that you would convict them, show them the goodness of your, of your mercies that are new every morning that the happiness that they're, that they're chasing after is just this carrot that's dangling in front of them that they will never grab hold of. Any kind of happiness or finding through, through earthly relationships or material possessions or how much money they have, all that's fleeting. I pray that you would make that abundantly clear to them in this moment. That they would place their faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty on the cross for the sin of the world for those who believe in his name. So we thank you for teaching us these things. Thank you for the word that you've given to us that we have the privilege to read every single day, every moment of our life, and that you are always teaching us something new. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.